You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is season three, episode 12. Vesper Stamper is an illustrator and author born in Nuremberg, Germany and raised in New York City. She has written and illustrated a young adult historical novel titled What the Night Sings. The book is set in post-World War II Germany and follows the journey of a young Jewish girl named Goethe, who has been liberated from the Nazi concentration camps and must rebuild her life apart from everything she once knew and loved. I spoke with Vesper earlier this year and discussed her creative process in writing the book and how her curiosity and interest in the Holocaust led her on a search for redemption in the midst of unimaginable circumstances. This is my conversation with illustrator and author Vesper Stamper. Vesper, I'm really excited to have you on Makers and Mystics, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Yeah, and for you, overdue. Yeah, it is overdue <laughs> for sure. And for you guys listening, Vesper and her husband Ben have been longtime friends of mine at this point. Uh, ben and Vesper did some touring with Songs of Water several years ago, and Vesper also illustrated. My children's book, which some of you know, Satchel Willoughby in the Realm of Lost Things, and uh, she's been a part of The Breath and the Clay for several years, and so we've just had a wonderful creative journey together, so it's an honor to have you here today, for sure. Thanks. It's, yeah. been, a, it's been interesting to see how God has changed our paths and gotten us into <laughs> new things. It's just awesome. It's true. I think... It's a wild ride. It is. I think the first time we met was in a smelly little bar in Chapel Hill, North Carolina called uh, Local 506. Yes. And you guys were on tour with the Danielson family at that point. That's right. That's, That's right. right. I remember that. I remember that meeting. That's yeah. Great. I think you were dressed like a nurse, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> That's right, in the Danielson family uh, uniform. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perfect. So, well, um, I know that you're just releasing this epic work called What the Night Sings. And I know, right. I know this has been your focus for several years now in the making. And so why don't we just dive in straight into the book and tell the listeners if you've got like a brief synopsis about who this book is written for, what age group, and kind of what the book is about. Sure. Well, this started as a graduate school project that I never anticipated going anywhere but grad school. It was just a way to explore some answers about my own upbringing and my own culture that had never really been discussed in my home. And I thought it would just start as a short story, you know, exploring some Holocaust history. And it turned into, yeah, a pretty epic young adult novel. Um, Started out as an adult novel, but quickly became clear that it needed to be a teenage protagonist. And because I was in graduate school for illustration, it was just sort of natural that it would be illustrated. And so when it got picked up by Knopf, um, they took a big chance doing something that's not quite a graphic novel. It's not quite a novel. It's this strange hybrid. Um, and they really put a lot of trust in me. So it's it's been a real honor to 
work on that. And the the book is basically about two teenage Holocaust survivors who meet on the day of their liberation from the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. And uh, they come from very different ends of the spectrum of Jewish identity and experience. Gerta didn't even know she was Jewish until she was taken and uh, is an aspiring young opera singer raised by her father, who's a violist. And so she lives in this world of uh, the intellectual artist movement in Germany at that time. And Lev, who is, is her friend who she meets, is a Hasidic young man from Poland who's a newspaper apprentice. So they couldn't be coming from more different worlds. It's about how when everything is taken away from them, how do they rebuild from the ground up, basically. That's incredible. I've had the chance to look at the book and and see the illustrations, and they are gorgeous. I've seen a lot of your work, but these are just some of my favorite images. And even the tone that you drew them in accentuates the topic of the book, I felt. And was that something you did on purpose? Yeah, I, I think we've all seen a lot of Holocaust imagery in school and uh, in movies and things like that. And we're so familiar with the raw gruesomeness, frankly, of the of the reality of it. And I thought in, in our day and age, 70 plus years later, we're so saturated with that imagery that it almost doesn't move us anymore. And so my approach was to take the look and feel of, you know, archival imagery, something that you might see in a newspaper, you might see in a, in a photo archive or something like that, but come at it from what I call coming at it from a side door and making the imagery metaphorical instead of literal and hoping that that would appeal to the heart of the viewer and the reader mm-hmm. and sort of bypass the intellect of it. One question that comes to mind is you said that this began as an adult work, but then as you got into it, you realized that this needed to be portrayed for a young adult audience. I'm curious what that thought process was that brought you to say, hey, this is important to tell to a young adult audience. Well, actually, how that came about is a little unglamorous. I was actually on submission with a picture book. And uh, my agent uh, had been sending this picture book around And it was getting roundly rejected by everyone we sent it to. (laughs) Um, But there was one editor at Knopf who liked my work, but didn't feel she wanted to buy that particular book. So my agent said, well, what are you looking for? And this was while I was working on on this grad school project. Mm. And this editor said, well, I'm always looking for books about World War II and the Holocaust for any age. And because she was in a children's book division that handled picture book through young adult, my agent called me right quick and said, quick, can you change your protagonist to a teenager? And I thought, well, uh, okay, I'll try it. And Stephen, the rest of the book downloaded. Wow. It's uh, once the character, once you're really listening to the character and what the character has to say to you, it writes itself. It becomes really just more about receiving it. Yeah. And uh, there's a certain amount of effortlessness to it. Not that it's not hard work, but the character tells you her story. Yeah. I hear that a lot from fiction writers, and there's such a relationship between the author and the protagonist and even the antagonist sometimes. So what was that process for you once you knew that Girta was going to be a young adult and once you began to identify with her story? Tell me about the process you went through with her as you wrote the book. Well, that was a 
that was definitely a wild ride uh, because it's the first time I had written something long format like this. Uh, I had written a novel beforehand, but it was about a little girl and um, and her mother. And so trying to get myself back to the place where I uh, where I thought like a teenager again, that was a challenge. But I didn't want to just think like Vesper as a teenager. I really wanted to know what Gerta had to say to me. So it was pretty torturous, actually, because the things that she had to say were not easy things. Mm -hmm. And her experiences, of course, were not easy. So I talked to a director friend of mine. And I said, how can I really embody this character more? They're just, it felt like I needed to unlock her more and more. And my director friend said to me, you don't want to give 100% Mm -hmm. to that question. (laughs) Uh, Try to understand understand her about 85%, because the people who try to embody their characters 100% are the ones who go insane. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have uh, plenty of um, artists in the canon who we can <laughs> right. point to who have <laughs> gone oh, a little yeah. too far. So I thought that was really healthy advice from her. I appreciated that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, is it correct, though, that you visited Auschwitz during this process? Is that right? Yeah. Last year, when I was in revisions with the manuscript, my friend Noel and I took a trip, a week-long trip, to Germany, Poland, and the Czech Republic. And we visited pretty much every place mentioned in the book. Um, I felt like I needed to get feet on the ground and really be in the places where I was you know, claiming that she was instead of just looking through archival footage and uh, reading survivor testimonies or even meeting with survivors, um, it was really important to be there. So yeah, we did a whirlwind, three countries in five days. Wow. Yeah. I can only imagine what you must have felt being there at such an intense, uh, I mean, even the pictures and the imagery that you brought back with you that I looked at from afar, it, it just evokes something like no other story I've ever heard does, just just... I don't know, it's even hard to talk about. And so I think that's that's one reason why I've been really fascinated with you writing this and especially writing it to a young adult audience because mm-hmm. I, I would almost think that this would be important for the upcoming generations to... to and, and maybe a fiction novel like this is almost a safer way to kind of broach this subject with them, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that... Um You know, I I have a teenager now, Mm -hmm. and seeing him raised with the amount of information saturation Mm -hmm. that we are now, um, it was one thing when uh, you and I, you know, came of age as the internet was getting started, and it was was pretty fascinating to be able to access all the information you wanted. But now it's kind of entered a new phase where there's so much disinformation, Mm -hmm. and it's just as easy to prove a falsehood as it is to prove a truth mm-hmm. with with what's circling around out there, yeah. or should I say circling the drain out there. <laughs> um, and so we see really epic, epic levels of anti-Semitism rising and epic levels of Holocaust denial. Mm-hmm. And these things are, they, they fly in the face of truth, but, um, you know, some people have said that we're in a post-truth generation, and I think that this is part of what's feeding that. And so I think as artists, at least I can speak for myself, that it felt like something of the cultural time right now Mm -hmm. that's really needed. I've even heard that 
uh, some school districts in some states don't even teach the Holocaust as a mm. as a necessary part of the curriculum, history curriculum. And I think, I mean, this is something in which, you know, World War II, uh, 3% of the world's population died. Yeah, yeah. You know, and two-thirds of one people group in Europe was wiped out. Mm-hmm. How could we not talk about it? Right. And, it, you know, it's in the living memory of yeah. people that we're walking around with today. So. Yeah. I did feel like this generation, because of the challenges they face in that way, mm-hmm. could benefit from having a point of connection where it's it's a character just like them. It's mm-hmm. also a really interesting time in literature where, you know, books like Harry Potter, mm-hmm. um, you know, really paved the way for a literary generation, you yeah. know. I mean, young adult literature is it's just explosive, mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. it's not just young adults that are reading it. Yeah. It's a, so there's a lot of opportunity there for, um, for connection. Yeah. <laughs> When I was in Auschwitz, we were walking down the main road in in the small camp, and there was a group of teenagers. There were a lot of different groups of teenagers on school trips and things. And there was one group of teenagers who were sort of walking down the street, kind of like chummy and laughing, walking through a concentration camp, you know, just kind of being teenagers. But And all of a sudden it hit me. I wrote this book for you. Wow. I wrote this book for you. Like some of the kids, please God, I hope that some of the kids in that very group will read the book. You know, I'm I'm hoping that it will get translated and um, circulated in in Poland and Germany. Um, So it it felt very acute at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find some of your own story coming through this? Because I know uh, from just conversations we've had that you grew up with a Jewish background, and I know that that's you've also been a student of the Holocaust, and I know that this subject matter has always been close to you. So did you find that... Um, your own story was interwoven into the situations the characters found themselves in? So, to be clear, uh, I was raised in a Jewish home. I'm not Jewish by birth. Mm -hmm. My mother converted when she married my stepfather, and so I was raised in a Reformed Jewish household, Mm -hmm. which was far more culturally Jewish than religiously Jewish. Um, I was raised with the Bible stories and things that I would learn in Hebrew school, and, you know, we went to synagogue and but by no means were we a religious household or a spiritual household at all. And um, also, as such, we really didn't talk about the past. Mm-hmm. There was a real sense of uh, we're Jewish in the way that it means to be Jewish now, mm-hmm. which is um, a lot of cultural pride and just it was it was fairly vague, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know what being Jewish meant. But I also didn't have a very positive experience with it. Mm-hmm. And so it was something that when I had the opportunity to, you know, begin my own life, 
I didn't really hearken back to that very much. It felt like something that I could leave behind. Especially as I began to follow Jesus, it made more and more sense that I was following this Jewish man. And uh, it started to click. All the things that were sort of put into me when I was a little kid that had become part of my DNA, my, my spiritual DNA or my cultural DNA. And I found that I was able to kind of understand things about my faith that my friends didn't understand having grown up in the church or uh, grown up in non-Jewish backgrounds. So uh, I began to really understand that this was something pretty special, like a a gift that I had been given, a Jewish upbringing. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until graduate school that I started to ask some deeper questions. Mm -hmm. Um, I had pretty much learned everything about the Holocaust that anybody else would in school or through watching Schindler's List or things like that, had a basic grasp of what had happened. Um, And growing up in New York in the 80s and 90s, you know, Holocaust survivors were living, a lot of them were living there and you'd intersect and, and things like that. But what happened in graduate school is that my family and I were sitting around watching Fiddler on the Roof one night. And I realized I just knew nothing about that part of history, the Russian pogroms really nothing about the suffering that went on in that period of time. Mm. So I went on a search and I happened to have this project where I I had to illustrate a book of any subject that I wanted and um, create the the content for that. So I started looking into that and I couldn't find as much as I thought I would find. Mm -hmm. And in that searching, I stumbled across a documentary called The Long Way Home, I think it's called, or The Long Walk Home. And it was about the period immediately following the Holocaust until the founding of the State of Israel. That three-year period between 1945 and 48. And for some reason, I I just had never considered that there was a transition period. Mm-hmm. I think maybe I thought, okay, well, the Holocaust was over and people just kind of got on with their lives. Mm. Or moved to America. Right. Or, and I, I hadn't had much education about the nature of Israel or the history of Israel. So that began a pretty obsessive search mm-hmm. for information on this topic wow. and how people emerge from trauma and how they have the courage to rebuild families, mm-hmm. to get married, to have children, to start, and frankly, to start a country. Mm-hmm. I mean, a large percentage of the people who were part of the founding of Israel were were survivors from this worst atrocity to hit mankind and yet created a a thriving democratic society Mm -hmm. that's pretty astounding to me (laughs) yeah Yeah. and it was one one family at a time one one choice at a time and one couple at a time one baby at a time yeah wow a question or really more of a statement i think that that comes on the heels of what you just shared is that i think that we as artists we have a freedom and we also have a responsibility it's a freedom but it really is a responsibility of the artist to explore difficult subjects that deal with human nature that that even deal with unpleasant things of tragedies of evil you know things that that we would we would call evil and when i think of the holocaust there's really no other word that that comes to mind about it and so you've really tackled that head on. And so I'd be curious, what, what are your thoughts coming from 
the perspective of an artist in dealing with human evil and in dealing with tragedy and I, I can only think of Psalm 88, you know, and, and, and some of these moments where, or Job, of course, you know, that yeah. c- comes to mind, just some of these moments that even in the scriptures, you see these people who uh, loved God and at the same time, they're facing tremendous or horrendous situations. It, do you have anything to speak into that? Wow, that is a tremendous statement. Uh <laughs> Well, my graduate thesis, actually, after I did this book, was on the book of Job, and it was a picture book. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. Um, But it had to do with uh, the questions at the end of the book of Job, where uh, Job is sort of raging and and trying to understand, you know, why this tragedy happened to him. And God basically lays out a series of questions to him. Did you, was it you that woke up the morning? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, can you measure, you know, the universe in the palm of your hand, basically? And um, really challenging Job to be at peace with mystery mm-hmm. and with things that he doesn't know. But it's also an invitation. It's not just like, no, 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 Job, just shut up, you know, right, and, right. and don't ask any questions. It's really a, a provocation and an invitation to come and seek out the deep things. I think that right now, the cultural moment that we're in, there's a lot more heat than light. Mm-hmm. And uh, the concept of activism uh, is, I'm using a lot of cliches here, but a mile wide and an inch deep. And I think a lot of it has to do with wanting to put things in neat categories, good, evil, all the sorts of labels we throw around these days, you know, and and really wanting people and and issues to kind of fit in neat packages so that we can understand them uh, and wrap them up with a nice little bow and, you know, maybe text a little donation to some charity or, you know, share an article on Facebook or, or shout somebody down at a university or something like that um, because you've you've managed to package them neatly into this little understandable thing. But I think as artists, and especially, there's so many different facets to the human experience, right? There's there's not just the evil, right? There's also the joy. Mm-hmm. And some artists are called to really explore the joy realm. And they should fully do that. They should feel fully free to explore all the facets of that. Some of us have not been called there. Yeah. Some of us have been called. And I, I think that that's not something you choose. I think it's something that you you look at the kind of work you've you've always been making. I'll say it this way. The nature of my own work has always been trying to understand the answer to the question, how does one survive and thrive after trauma? Mm-hmm. Because this is the subject of redemption. Yeah. And... To your point about Job, I mean, there there wasn't one biblical figure, including Jesus, including, you know, God in the flesh, <laughs> who didn't suffer. And it wasn't because that they, it wasn't necessarily because they were disobedient. It was because this is the human experience. And so Job had everything restored to him, right? Jesus was resurrected, but some people died in misery. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who in Siloam, who the the tower fell on, you know, Jesus said it wasn't because they 
sinned any worse than anyone else. They, <laughs> but they died in tragedy, you know? And so if this is common to all of us, I think for me, un- unpacking the question of how does one how does one experience redemption or or pursue redemption after that is a really worthwhile question to explore. This has been an incredible time and, and this has been inspiring to me just to get a glimpse into your process and just to see what you've given to this work and and so I'm looking forward to reading it in its totality but I wonder if you'd be willing to read a few little excerpts of the book to the people listening sure I would love to I didn't know until Lev told me there are four words in Hebrew that mean world and one of them means hidden world He says that in each of us is a hidden world. Each of us is a world. Each baby born, a world created, a possibility. Each one who dies, a red star smoldering out. And in all of this, the hidden places within another person are concealed from us. Lev and I have become fast friends. It's amazing that after so long here, we all seem new to each other. Just a few months ago when the British came, everyone was dying. No one really spoke then. Who would bother striking up a conversation you might not live to finish? And what would you say? Everyone had seen the same things. After you've witnessed your 20th, 100th, 1000th person perish, words are meaningless. Your life becomes bread, rainwater, numbers, keeping your feet clean, any obsessive ritual to keep your own heart beating. But Lev broke the silence. We walk from lunch every day to this little copse of birch, where we can get away from the camp noise and talk. He tells me about God, I tell him about music, the mysteries of each other's worlds. Lev sits on the ground, I on a tree stump. He's managed to pull together donated clothes that are more appropriate to his upbringing. The white threads of his seat seat entwine with the tiny shoots springing up from the base of a tree. Lev, before the war, did you just study and pray all the time? I mean, what did you do? He looks up at me and smiles. I was an apprentice at a newspaper. Really? Are you surprised? I am. You seem like such a scholar. No, not a scholar, he laughs. There's a newspaper starting here, you know. They just brought in a press. I'm going to join. Know what it's called? What? I lean in closer, eager to hear. Unser Stimme. Our voice. Great name, don't you think? Our voice. Yes, it's perfect, I say, meditating for a moment. That's kind of a commitment, though, isn't it, Lev? Staying to start a newspaper? I know, he says. I thought we'd have been released by now. I think the British are in over their heads. We get up and start back to the main square. There's a group of little kids standing in the sunshine doing hand motions as they sing the Hebrew alphabet. Their voices are like chimes in the warming breeze. School's in already, says Lev, amused. Teachers don't waste time, do they? I've got three years of high school to catch up on myself, I groan. Look at their faces, Lev smiles. The kids and the teachers. They're in heaven. 
We stop in the middle of the square at the announcement board, which lists jobs and training opportunities. The camp pulsates with this collective energy gearing up for change. Everyone is hungry to engage their minds and hands. One advertisement in particular grabs my attention. I sign my name on the list for the New Camp Musical Society. Mm. Wow. <laughs> That's beautifully written. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Music for this episode is provided by the band Zusha and pianist John MacArthur. If you'd like to dig deeper into these conversations on art and faith, you can join our collective at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. You can also find links to our sponsors and guests in the show notes of this episode. Thanks once again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Oh,